Welcome to the Wedding Film Academy podcast, your go-to source for learning to create stunning wedding films and run a successful business. Here's your host, Lumix Luminary and wedding filmmaker, Jordan Bunch. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Wedding Film Academy podcast. This is episode 10, and so I'm super excited to celebrate double digits here with Griffin Hammond. And uh, he is an incredible documentary, documentary filmmaker, and he's also a YouTube sensation. Um, I'll, I'll call him that anyways. I've been following him for um, since I got started in this anyways. Um, I, I don't know how many years that is, but he's had an awesome YouTube channel that has been extremely helpful for me in getting started with all this. And I know that's probably the same for a lot of you guys, because I think last I checked, he had well over 60,000 YouTube subscribers. So I'm sure quite a few of our listeners um, have been watching his videos. Um, And so why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Griffin? Sure. Uh, These days I call myself a documentary filmmaker, but I feel like every few years I've changed how I describe myself. I think for a long time I wasn't comfortable owning the phrase filmmaker. So I called myself a videographer. I did a lot of corporate work and did a lot of wedding work. And uh, I've I've continually evolved what I do and tried to keep growing as a filmmaker. Yeah, awesome. So how did you, just kind of give me the the story of like your, your journey into filmmaking that's led you to where you are today. I started being interested in film in high school. I mean, I learned how to edit video in high school in a video class. And I thought I wanted to be a, you know, like the traditional director, screenwriter kind of person in Hollywood. So I went to film school at New York University. uh, And actually, I failed out of film school. (laughs) But uh, I I found my way again. uh, And finished my degree as like a, a video production, like a television news sort of major. Mm-hmm. And I've found video work all over the place since then. And they haven't been traditional jobs. I worked as a video producer at State Farm Insurance for a while. Then I had a job at YouTube. And then I made a film on my own, Sriracha. And that led to something. It led to my job at Bloomberg News covering the presidential election. It kind of seems like my whole career has just been me trying to do my best work and then people like just word of mouth people recommending me for things and saying you should try this you should try this and i've just kind of gone wherever people are willing to hire me yeah okay very cool when did you get started with the whole youtube thing because i know that's been a big part of what you do that was in 2011 i left state farm because a friend of mine justin johnson who started indie mogul asked me if I wanted to come run it. He was, it had been purchased by Google. It became like an in-house YouTube channel at Google. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to run it because he was leaving. So I ran that for two years. And I'd been a YouTube user, but I hadn't really been like fully invested in YouTube until I was working there. And then I realized how powerful it is as a, like a community building tool, how powerful that subscription model can be. Awesome. Very cool. So I know at some point, because um, at some point along the way, while I was, you know, watching your YouTube channel, I saw that you were doing some wedding films. Yeah. Um, I don't think you're doing those anymore, are you? Not at the moment. Although every once in a while, a friend of mine gets married and they ask me to do their wedding. Yeah. 
that's bound to happen. Yeah. Um, so how'd you get started into wedding filmmaking? Weddings go way back to like my very first paid work as a video person was okay. in high school. I was developing these skills and it was a young high school. It was a new high school. So we had a lot of young teachers and it just seemed like all the teachers were getting married to each other all the time. <laughs> and so several teachers asked me and my friend Nick, who also is co-host of my podcast, uh, they asked us if we could film their weddings. And I think we got paid like a hundred dollars together yeah. to shoot You're rich. our first wedding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we did a bunch of weddings in high school and we kind of put it on the back burner through college. But at the end of college, we upgraded our gear to high definition equipment. This was like 2010 and decided we should start doing weddings again. Why did we stop? And uh, Nick's actually done a lot more than me. We talk about this on our podcast. He He's done, I don't know, maybe a hundred or something. I've probably done like 20 weddings in my career. Yeah. So So that was never really like your plan to be a wedding filmmaker you were what, what did you kind of have your sights set on i didn't really have my sights set on anything i i feel like i'm not very ambitious as a filmmaker <laughs> uh but it's worked out okay that i just kind of try a lot of things and see what people want to hire me for and i i think for a few months i thought yeah let me just make wedding films my business but it was interesting that the moment i started advertising myself as a wedding videographer I, I got a lot of that work, but I started to get a lot of other kinds of work too. I mean, I think once people knew that I was a video person who knows what they're doing and is available for hire, not everyone knew that I was willing to take on freelance projects because they thought, oh, you have a job. Why would you want to do that? Right. But I was doing this stuff on the side and they were willing to hire me for any sort of corporate video. So I kind of ended up with this mix of, of clientele that included weddings. Okay, nice. And then at what point did you decide like, I mean, you said you're still doing some for friends on the occasion that that happens or something, but at some point you decided, you know, I'm not going to advertise for weddings anymore. That's not kind of what I'm going to go after. What was your deciding factor in that? You know, I'm trying, I don't, I don't remember if there was a, an exact moment if I, when I said, I'm just going to stop doing weddings, but part of it was I moved to New York in 2014 and I wasn't about to start advertising again in a new market. And I had my price figured out in Illinois. I was in central Illinois. And I also, I think I started, I kept pushing my price up. You know, I think my price started at $1,500 for a wedding when I started doing it in that market. And I pushed it up to 3000 eventually. I mean, over time, it, it got higher as I got better, as my equipment got better. And once I got to $3,000, I started to feel like, that market wasn't going to support much higher. That a lot of the clients I have are young, they're just out of college, they may be paying themselves. I didn't feel like charging people more than $3,000 when that's coming out of their own pockets. Whereas for the same amount of work, maybe 40 hours of work, if I'm doing that for a company, I think I was charging maybe $100 an hour at the time. Mm -hmm. So I could get $4,000 or $5,000 from corporate work, and I just didn't feel like charging that much. And maybe I could have. The market might have supported it in my town. But I just started to feel like weddings are a lot of work. Yeah. And they also have to go on your calendar like a year in advance. Yep. So there's harder to do than a corporate job. And if you can get the corporate work, uh, that's it's also good work to have. 
Okay, cool. That's fair enough. I think a lot of people feel that way. I, I talked to a lot of people on, uh, you know, in person and on forums and things like that, where um, they really feel like there's this wall and a lot of people draw that line at, at $3,000 still. Yeah. Um, and so for a lot of people, you know, whether it's reality or not, um, they, that's sort of their reality is that there's a wall there. And so, um, so yeah, totally understand that. So but the thing I do love about weddings is, I mean, compared to like any corporate job, those can be pretty boring and weddings are always just beautiful. I mean, you never yeah. get like to work with those costumes and those sets and yeah. that storyline. It's just like, it's, it's the best possible thing you could, you could want to film. It's a little bit nerve wracking, but there's so much beauty there. When you come back and you edit, you're just like smiling the whole time. And that's what I always loved yeah. about it. Well, I think there's a lot of probably, and, and I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I, I, you know, I do weddings, but I wouldn't call myself a documentary filmmaker, even though it is in a way that, um, but I think there's a lot of similarities. And that's why I, part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because yeah. there are so many similarities in that I would imagine that for the most part, there's these fleeting moments that happen when you're making a documentary that you can't always reshoot. And there's probably more times that you can reshoot than we can reshoot as wedding filmmakers, wow. but you still have, you still have that aspect of things um, as opposed to, you know, someone who kind of, uh, you know, has a, has a script and they can kind of reshoot it as many times as their budget will allow. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I, I think that weddings probably were great training for me to be quick on my feet and get a lot of material shot in real time. You know, once the, the event's over, you can't shoot anymore. So you're just getting as many shots as you can, all your close-ups, wide shots, medium shots, a diversity of things so that when you're editing, you have all the options. Yeah, for sure. So, like, what was your your journey from weddings to you know, making a film like, like Sriracha or, or like covering the election. Yeah. Well, I think doing weddings got me comfortable, you know, just with the operations of my camera, just understanding how my camera works and how to get good shots. And I think for a long time, when I, I think when I started editing, especially at the beginning of my wedding video career, I thought of myself as a good editor that I could fix bad video. Like, Maybe not everything's always shot perfectly, but I can make I can finagle it in the editing and make it better. Yep. And somewhere in my wedding video career, I got comfortable with shooting enough that I felt like I was a good shooter. Like maybe I'm a better shooter than I'm an editor. And so I, that that was good for my confidence. And I think eventually I was going to a lot of film festivals and just had this epiphany: like I should be like I was attending as a, as a as a spectator, but I, I thought I could be here next year with something like I'm good enough. Now I know how to shoot and I know how to edit and I could tell a good story. So why don't I try doing that? And so I just, I set out to make a documentary about my favorite hot sauce. That's awesome. And a lot of people's favorite hot sauce. Yeah. As it turns out, a lot of people are really into it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that then, because this is, uh, you know, this particular podcast in the series is about storytelling. And so tell me about Sriracha. Yeah. Well, I think when I started making the film or decided I wanted to make the film, I thought it was interesting how how much fandom there is around the sauce. I figured that 
this could be a film about how wacky the fans are and how committed they are. And maybe I'll find like a wedding couple that has a Sriracha themed wedding cake or something. <laughs> like I thought it would be a story about all these little anecdotes about how interesting this culture around the sauce outside of the sauce is. But the more I looked into the story and researched it, I realized there's a lot I just don't know. I was just curious, like where does this actually come from? Apparently it comes from California, but it looks so foreign and most people don't know anything about where it comes from or the guy who makes it. Uh, so I just had a lot of questions that I wanted to answer. And then when I started really investigating the guy, realized this guy, David Tran, who makes it, is really fascinating. And so it took on more a more traditional documentary story, like the story of a protagonist who has, has gone through this incredible journey and is passionate about this stuff. And so it turned out there was actually a real story there. That's awesome. And it ended up like I was looking, looking all this up earlier and like ended up on like, you got on 22 film festivals. Is that right? Am I yeah. Up right? yeah. It may be up as high as 30 now. It keeps getting oh, wow. into festivals even years later. Yeah. That's awesome, dude. Congrats on that. And one, it won two of those, right? Yeah. It won a couple of awards. It won like a best short film award and a best doc short award awesome dude congrats thanks so you had you had a particular kind of story in mind for sriracha going into it but as you started shooting it that story really morphed um talk to me about in general so let's say um well here's another one um you could talk about sriracha or you could talk about this one i saw that you did a you did a short about uh, those big ice blocks that they have yeah. and nice, um, you know, and it's kind of a lot of the upscale bars in New York and, and all around the country, really. But um, but I think yours was set in New York, if I'm remembering correct. Yeah, it was in New York. Yeah. So tell me about your pre-production work, what you're doing to develop what you believe the story is going to be. Well, I I do as much research as I can. I'm just reading a lot of articles. When I made Sriracha, there actually weren't that many articles. So it was kind of easy. I started with just like the five print articles that existed about David Tran. And I kind of organized all the research into bullet points. I just kind of wrote down everything I could possibly know about him. And that started to make me realize where the gaps were. Like, well, you know, I don't know this piece of information. And I'm really curious about that. So that, that forms a question I'm going to ask him. So a lot of my questions would come directly from Either it's something I need to know that I don't yet know, or it's something that I already know the, the, the fact, but I know that if I hear him say it, it'll be really powerful. Mm. Uh, for yeah. example, even just quotes, there was a quote in, in one of the newspaper articles where he said, uh, someone told him to make the sauce milder, and he said, no, we're making hot sauce here. We're not making mayonnaise. <laughs> and I thought that's a great, great quote. I mean, maybe yeah. he'll say that to me. Uh, he, he actually didn't say he only he didn't say the mayonnaise part to me on camera, but he said the other part, which was good enough. Yeah. But uh, then I'm also forming questions to try to hit all the major plot points. Like I actually I follow Dan Harmon. Do you know who Dan Harmon is? He's a sounds familiar. But he created the TV show Community. Oh, yes. That's why I love that show. I watched the whole thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if you watch Community, if you, if you read this thing that Dan Harmon does, called the, he calls it the story circle. There's eight parts to it. 
And if you learn about the story circle and then watch community, you'll go, oh yeah, I see all these eight things in every episode, and maybe even multiple times in each episode with each character. Not only that, but the one character, he talks about this. The Oh yeah. Um, yeah, does Abed talk about this? Abed, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Abed is like the the proxy for Dan Harmon himself. Yeah, that's awesome. And, but yeah, so I mean, I won't go through all the eight parts, but it essentially boils down to you have a character who wants something, they go on a journey, they find that thing, there are consequences, you know, all those things that you expect in a story. But it's it's nice to really plot them out and think about them simply as as eight parts. So when I'm writing questions, at the very least, I should be writing eight questions that hit all those moments. I can ask, tell me about yourself. I can ask, why did you decide to go on this journey? Or what was, you know, what was it you were really looking for in life? Or why did you want to make the sauce? You know, I can hit all those parts. How did you really know when you when you were successful and what's you know the future look like all those things mm. and then if you ask everyone in the film questions along that whole continuum then you can kind of chart it out in the editing and just say well these are all the you know this is the beginning of my story here's the middle of my story here's the end of my story and it all comes together pretty well mm. i think that's really powerful so is, say say the name of that circle again, just so people can research, look that up, because I yeah. want to say something about that. But say the name of that again. I, I call it Dan Harmon's Story Circle. Okay. I think if you just Google Dan Harmon's Story Circle, you'll find it. He's written articles about it. Right. So a, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, again, from the perspective of a, of a wedding filmmaker, and thinking, well, that's the same story of, you know, a couple falling in love, right? Yeah. Is um, guy sees the thing the object of his desire, right? This, uh, this woman, and he becomes attracted to her and he decides, you know, through whatever means that he's going to court relationship with her. And, um, you know, he's going to probably deal with some ups and downs along the way. Yeah. Um, leading to this crescendo moment of their wedding ceremony. Yeah. And if we can tell that story, in a powerful way, we will have succeeded in our wedding films, regardless of truly, regardless of what the footage looks like, um, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, the, the different elements of, of the wedding day that, that kind of screw up our flow, our mojo. If we can tell that story, the story of man falling in love and doing what it, whatever it takes to, um, to court this woman to become his wife, then we will have succeeded. So, so that's really great. I think, and and I think when we're thinking about pre-production, hearing some of the things that you're talking about here in terms of uh, thinking about those eight questions that we would ask, I think that can be really helpful in having those type of conversations, like you did, um, you know, with the creator of Sriracha to ask those same questions of our couples. So that's, that's super helpful. Thank you, Griffin. Well, yeah. And at the very least, I think, you know, you're not going to hit all those plot points. Like one of Dan Harmon's plot points is something called the take, which is where the character gets what they want, but they realize it's not what they actually wanted, which okay. is good in like a, a sitcom, but it's probably not going to happen in your film, in your wedding film. Like chances are at the climax of the film when they're, you know, they're finally getting married. <laughs> You're not going to have some some twist ending like Dan Harmon would want. Yeah. 
But I think at the very least, Hopefully if you're just thinking, we'll yeah. <laughs> Although that would make a great wedding film. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> but at the make very sure you least, get that, uh, that waiver ahead of time that you're allowed yeah. to post no matter what. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think at the very least, just thinking about asking questions. If you are someone who asks questions of the bride and groom on camera, asking questions that get to more than just that moment that you're in when you're asking the questions. You can ask the question, "How are you feeling right now?" But make sure you're also getting some questions that address the future, like, you know, you, you may not interview them after they kiss at the end of their ceremony, but maybe you want to ask them a question like, how do you think you'll feel? And you'll probably get a soundbite that feels very much like it already happened and get some soundbites about the beginning of the relationship. I mean, you get, I'm sure everyone does this already. Just naturally, we know we want to tell a full story. So we, we think temporally about getting all of the plot points. Sure. Well, and one thing I'm trying to do with with this series is there are people, there's a, there's a lot of wedding filmmakers who are more like making music videos out of their mm-hmm. weddings. Um, so there are no audio clips. So I'm trying to give some tools for these people to start stretching what they're doing to be able to tell real stories um, with their wedding films. But also um, just for those of us who have been work, you know, using sound bites and things like that to to learn how to take those pieces and craft them into a compelling story. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are great tips, you know, whether it's you're interviewing them um, to, to kind of get those audio pieces or you've asked them in advance to maybe write a letter that is going to address some of these questions yeah. um, to their future spouse, um, whatever means that you want to go about that. I just think that it's important that you have the bride and groom in their own voice saying these things. Yeah. Well, yeah, even if you're not shooting the interviews, that's how I would normally do it, but just getting an audio recorder and putting it in their face and, you know, just getting the audio can be good too. But I, I mean, I think I relied on it not even because at the time, I don't think I necessarily thought like this will be the way to capture the story. I think I just kind of thought selfishly as a video editor like i know i'm going to get more emotion out of my audience by -hmm. hearing that i think when you add all this stuff up you have beautiful music you have your beautiful shots and then when you add the voice of the groom saying how much he loves the bride that just pushes people over the edge into crying (laughs) so i mean it just works really well i think the more of this emotional content you can layer on top uh the the better result you'll have absolutely Yep. I always, uh, I, I joke with my wife that I don't feel like I'm successful if I haven't made my viewer cry in the first 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I had a lot of epiphanies while editing videos, w- wedding videos that have carried over into my other work. And one of the big ones was just thinking about your audience, knowing that, knowing what your wedding audience wants. And it's maybe not always the same thing I want as an editor. As an editor, I want to make a really snappy, perfect piece that that flies by, that shows how great of an editor I am, and it's never boring. But then I have to remember that the people watching this film want to see everything. They They would like it to drag out a little bit. It doesn't need to be the most tightly edited, perfect piece, because they're going to love every second of it. So even if it's a little bit sloppy, it's not as tight as it could be, uh, they're going to appreciate that. And I often think about that. When I'm making a documentary, I'm thinking, if this is a thing in the editing that's making me smile watching it, 
why am I not putting it in the film? If it's making me laugh or I, I enjoy this, seeing this, even if it's not the prettiest shot, maybe it's shaky, but if it, if it teaches me something and I like it and I smile when I watch it, why am I not putting it in the film? So I've learned to like let go a little bit of perfection and just try to make something that people are going to be really happy with. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think we've had a few people on the show that have talked about that of like eliminating certain tools that they use that sort of slow them down. They make the shot look better, but they sl it slows them down. And so sometimes, you know, um, that that ideal of perfect can get in the way of telling a good story. So yeah, I think it's a good word. So, you know, this is, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, this next question. Um, you, you talked about NC Racha again, you had this, this idea of what you were going to do with, with the film. And then as you get into it, you realize, hey, there's a better story here. Um, or there's another kind of big element that I was just, you know, missing. I didn't know about, um, Tell me kind of how you shift gears thinking I'm going to do this one thing and then, you know, you figure out, oh, there's this other thing going on here that maybe is the real story that I should be telling. How, how do you kind of shift gears in the moment? Um, because sometimes we get surprised by something that happens at a wedding um, that we didn't expect, um, whether it's, you know, an event that happened or you know, a story that's being told through a toast or something, we realize, oh man, this is the actual story that I should be telling here. How do you kind of shift gears in that moment and, you know, let, let what's, what should happen, happen? Yeah. Well, I always think of documentary filmmaking as this recursive process where you can plan what you want the story to be, but you know that while you're shooting, you're going to learn something and that'll change it. So then you come back to the editing and maybe you've already started piecing together story, but now you'll have to delete a scene or, or add a new scene. So just recognizing that it's going to keep improving the more you learn about the story, uh, so you don't have to get stuck in your original concept. But I like, I like kind of the messiness of documentary and, and weddings, that it can, it can completely change on you. But I also think that you have a power in the sort of nonfiction filmmaking to roll with it that you know if you're if you're making a fiction film and the scene you're, you're unable to shoot it according to the script you're gonna have to go back and rewrite i mean maybe you can fix it but it might ruin your whole film whereas with a documentary or, or, or wedding if something goes completely crazy that might be fun <laughs> to mm -hmm. showcase the craziness on camera i mean there's yeah. usually a way to fix it i mean this is why at a wedding you're shooting hopefully you're getting coverage with multiple cameras so you can always cheat a little bit and, <laughs> oh, crap, I wasn't pointing the camera at the right place, but uh, one of my cameras was looking at something interesting. I can cut to that for a second. Yeah. Maybe shorten the times. So you can't really tell that it was all screwed up. I mean, you can, you can play around with documentary and make it work, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Um, okay, so tell me about one of the things that we do a lot on wedding day is and, and I, I used to do some sports photography, and, and so I kind of relate it to this, is you learn the sport so that you can anticipate moments that are about to happen. Yeah. And for a seasoned wedding filmmaker, they can anticipate these moments that are about to happen. I was talking about this with my assistant at a wedding I was shooting uh, yesterday, actually, is I can tell 
when during a first dance, I can tell when the groom's about to spin his bride, like, yeah. you know, based on what the song is doing even, yeah. you know, and so I'm ready in that moment with my gimbal to, you know, to circle around them and do that dynamic movement as, as he's spinning her. Cause I know like that's going to be the shot that I want. Yeah. So talk to me about like what role anticipation plays in making a good documentary film. Well, there are, there are a lot of times when I'm, I'm quick on my feet. I mean, I, I find myself when I'm interviewing people, sometimes I'm interviewing with just one camera and I, but I may know that I want wide shots and close-ups of the person talking while they're talking. And I feel like, I've gotten pretty good at knowing or listening well enough to know that this part of what this person is saying is not going to end up in the film. So here's a great time for me to zoom in and get, you know, if I have to do that move sometime, this is the time to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also, when I'm shooting B-roll, I let myself just be inspired by what I'm seeing. I guess I don't really have like a shot list going in. Uh, but when I'm walking around a factory, you know, Sriracha factory, I just, kind of see what uh, inspires me and it's like oh I'll go, I'll go get those shots and yeah, I guess but it, but it, a lot of it has just been practice yeah. and doing this stuff enough and you get good at it I, I think it's funny that in weddings I did a lot of weddings and yet I feel like for so many of them I would always forget that everyone stands up when the bride comes down the aisle I don't, yeah. like that's an obvious thing I stand up in your groom shot yeah you just forget like oh yeah my camera's completely uh, yep. uh, like maybe I set up a second camera that's unmanned in the back and I didn't put it high enough. Or you're just like, oh, that, that shot's dead for the next few minutes. Well, yep. I think everybody has been there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no worries. <laughs> I actually kind of loved weddings because they were always, there's so much going on that I always knew there would be a problem. Like mm. as much as I could prepare and practice, there's always something I'm going to get wrong at a wedding. And I just yep. set up a lot of redundant systems. Like I'm getting recording audio in a lot of different ways. I'm recording video with a bunch of different cameras. I have my editing tricks that can fix various problems, but there's always going to be something that I screw up. I'm not going to have the best shot when something happens, yep. but I'll find a way around it. And, and I, you know, every wedding is a different video. I don't try to make the same one for every couple. Yeah, for sure. No, that's good. Talk to me about, okay, so um, let's just say, for example, um well never mind let's let's do this so so you've got your footage done you know you think uh you know you've come back from your your travels or whatever you're doing and you've got your footage and you got to start making your film you got to start the edit what are, what's what's sort of your process like what's in your mind as you're going about that process of taking this these raw materials and creating story from it sure well, a lot of it, just like in weddings, a lot of it is just the preparation of the footage. You know, I'm starting by organizing this massive amount of content that's coming into my computer and synchronizing audio and layering video tracks and just getting it all in a row in, yeah. in the editing software. And I start with my interviews. So, I, you know, I've shot hours and hours of b-roll to support these interviews but at least the interviews are a place i can i can begin and i do this with weddings too i would start by just cutting down you know maybe i start by just cutting out the answers just cutting down to the answers without my questions yeah. then i'll go back through and find just the best sound bites and 
So I've taken now I've taken a 15 minute inter interview and it's down to three minutes of usable stuff that might make it into the film. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go through and do that with all my interviews. Then now that I have, you know, maybe I have 20 minutes of just interview content in my timeline and maybe I'm making a five minute short film. It's like clearly this is way too much stuff, yeah. but I can start organizing the clips by what are they talking about? If it's the ice documentary, which part of the process are they talking about? Are they talking about the freezing part? You know, when they create these big blocks of ice? Sure, I'll put those over here. And I just, I'm putting it in the order of that, like, Dan Harmon story circle order. Okay. Just organizing all the, the clips that way. And then, now that I have it all organized in order, now I can really start to cut it down. I can realize, I can notice, oh, I have redundant clips. Like, you know, in a wedding, you might have the bride and groom saying the exact same thing next to each other. Well, I could cut one of them. So who said it better? Right. So I'm doing that kind of stuff. And then and then I'm building the audio part of my film first. So I usually kind of let the 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 music slash the the interviews do the work. Occasionally I'll throw in what's called a Nat sound break, which is just where you let the real sound of an event come up. So you get away from the music, you get away from the the interviews and you just let something that played out on camera play out yeah. and you just kind of figure out what is what do i what are all the moments that i want to include in this film whether it's documentary or, or wedding film and then that's when i start layering on the b-roll because now i know exactly how long this intro is that i need outdoor shots or whatever i need you know then you can kind of organize the b-roll accordingly so i think it can be kind of overwhelming to start with so much content but if i just kind of split it in half and say like, well, I'm really going to think about the audio first. Mm. That kind of makes it easier for me. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Very cool. So um, do you have, do you have like, when, when I'm making a wedding video and I've talked about this, you know, I, I kind of drive this point home a lot in a lot of these podcasts is that uh, dynamics are important you have this um, this ebb and flow to things that if you're going to have this powerful crescendo moment that you need to let the person breathe before and after that happens. Yeah. Um, kind of talk to me about how you do that in a documentary. That's something that took me a while to learn because I, I find that with my films, I kind of have ADD as an editor and I want things to always move quickly. But yeah, you can't, you can't appreciate the highs without the lows and the, the fast parts without the slow parts. And I often think about this, the idea of the law of diminishing returns mm. that, you know, if you had an action film and every action sequence was the same level of intensity, you would get bored by the third action sequence, even though it's just as exciting as the first one, but yep. the audience expectations will grow as the film goes. Right. So you don't want the whole thing to be at one energy level. You need it to build and, and maybe collapse occasionally. So I do, I do usually with my wedding films, I would think of them in two halves. I would do kind of the, you know, the ceremony side first and then the, the reception. And I would let it calm down after the, the ceremony because that's a big climax to the kiss. That's a huge moment. Then everyone's outside cheering. That's big. And then I'll find some slower moments, let the music cut off. Yeah. let it calm back down before we get to the to the uh, reception that's a great time for an establishing shot of where the reception is and yep. maybe we hear a little bit of bird sounds from outside instead of hearing 
crashing music. Yeah. So I cool. think just, yeah, I think just knowing that your audience is going to need some time to breathe, just look for those moments. Yeah, that's great. Okay, talk to me about, um, as, as someone who's, who's making, you know, documentaries, you're, you know, you're, you're running around a lot. You're in, you know, sometimes you're in tighter places than you'd like to be. Um, it's the same thing for us. You know, we don't get to choose the size of the bride's dressing room. Right. Uh, and so at least for me, you know, being nimble is really helpful. Um, talk to me about some of your equipment, um, your cameras, um, your, if you're using any type of stabilizer or you're going handheld or talk to me about through some of that and, and what you find helpful and sort of getting out of the way to help you tell a better story. I've always really relied on, on lightweight gear. And I think I've liked being really, really small. Um, so I use, I've used Panasonic GH cameras. Like I started with the GH one and I've used every single one, GH two, three, four. I now have the GH five and I like them because they're mirrorless and they just seem to be a little bit smaller and, and lighter weight. The lenses are smaller uh, because of that. And I can be handheld most of the time. Actually, one of my favorite things about these cameras was that I, I was covering the, I've covered several red carpet events, mm -hmm. like the Golden Globes and, and the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, there's a place for all the professional photographers and video people to be. It's like a little cage next to the red carpet and they're not supposed yeah. to leave that area. And I didn't even have credentials for that. I was just hoping that if I showed up, maybe I could get some cool video. Yeah. I had a tuxedo on, and I just walked onto the red carpet with my small camera that looks like I'm taking photos or something. It doesn't look like I'm shooting yeah. Yeah. 4K video. And no one thinks to kick me off the red carpet because I look like I'm supposed to be there. Yeah. And I just think, you know, if I had a big shoulder rig, if I had a big gimbal, if I had all the, all the stuff you might throw on top of your camera, yeah. I might not have gotten away with that. Yeah, even a monopod would have given you away. Right. Yeah. So there, there are definitely things you can shoot that you can't always shoot if you, ha if you have all that gear. Yeah. So I've stayed away from shoulder rigs mostly because I've gotten used to shooting without them. I did use a, uh, a Glidecam HD 2000 when I was mm -hmm. shooting weddings. Yep. I never got into electronic gimbals mostly because those all started after I yeah. got out of weddings. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, I, I use a small audio recorder, the Zoom H4n. Now I use the Zoom H5, mm -hmm. uh, all that sort of stuff. Okay, cool. So are you using the full, a lot of people that I talk to are, if they're using a GH camera, they're, you know, a lot of times they've like switched over from Canon or something and they're using their old Canon lenses with like a Metabones adapter or something. It sounds like you're, are you also using like all, Micro Four Thirds glass, or I am. I have had a few lenses. Like I had a Tokina lens for a Canon mount. I used to have a, a speed booster. I actually lost it at uh, Trump's victory party. I was covering Trump <laughs> on election night, yeah. and I was so tired when I left. I managed to leave behind a lens and a oh. speed booster. Yeah. So since then, I've gone all Panasonic glass, just because I had to add some more lenses to yeah. cover the ones I lost. But um. I like them because they, they are smaller. I like them because with, with the speed booster, you don't always get focus control. Not, not everything yeah. is communicated through the adapter. Right. And I just felt like I was always using like heavy lenses, like Canon gl glass. It's like, why am I using this small camera and then a huge lens oh, when I don't necessarily way. need to? Yep. 
feel the same way. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a huge advocate. If if you're gonna sh whatever camera system you're using, like use the class that's native to that camera yeah. system because it just it works better across the board. Yeah. But there's just a huge selection of lenses for Micro Four Thirds, whether it's Olympus, Panasonic, uh, Sigma. Um, there's Voigtlander, Rokinon. I mean, everybody makes lenses for Micro Four Thirds. And the cool thing about it too is you can use, you know, if you had to, you know, you could use adapters and then use some old vintage lenses that are also pretty small, you know. Yeah. But but in general, I always say like use the glass that was made for. Um, for the system so yeah yeah if you don't already have a bunch of glass and you're going to go out and buy something i think it makes sense to buy the ones that match your camera yeah have you ever been because you're doing like documentaries and commercial work and things like that have you ever been in a situation where you had the opposite the opposite effect of the red carpet event where they're like oh that's what you brought here to shoot this, this little camera system have you ever been in that situation early in in my wedding video career it it was it was weird to show up with a DSLR because I was you know in 2010 when I started there weren't a lot of people shooting with those mm. so people would be a little bit confused um, but it never seemed like it was a big problem like people if people are hiring you based on your reel then they know what you're capable of yep. and I mostly found if I just threw a microphone on top of the camera that kind of stopped that <laughs> problem like people go oh that's a video thing yeah <laughs> but I never I never stopped having the problem of people pausing to pose in front of me. Yeah. Like they always think you're shooting photos. Yep. No, we, I, I'm sure everyone who's listening has gotten that before. With yeah. Them. You know, especially at a wedding, it's like, Hey, can you take my picture with him? Like, you know, sometimes I'll actually just kind of pretend and I'll just, you know, because oh, yeah. <laughs> well, my, my favorite thing anyways, you know, with weddings and with documentary, my favorite thing is always how people, they, they apologize when they walk in front of your shot yeah. and you're like, I'm here documenting you. Like you are all part of this story that I'm telling. Like, yeah, you don't have to like walk behind me or duck. Like it looks worse that like, way. You're actually like shooting them. And then they like, <laughs> oh. I'm sorry, I'll get out of the way. I'm like, no, I was taking a video of you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's funny. Um, cool. So, so is it, is it, for everything pretty much you're just you're going handheld on everything or are you doing anything else you mentioned the glide cam before but i mean i use i use tripods for for interviews for time lapses um but that's that's really my main piece of stabilization equipment yeah. I, so I don't even travel with the glide cam anymore because i'm not i'm not telling i guess in in my documentary work it's it's less necessary for me to have those kinds of shots it was useful for weddings yeah, and I've just I've kind of embraced my like handheld a little bit dirty style. Like it's not going to be a beautiful wedding film. Everything I make, but right. my editing is is frenetic, and I'm going to show you a lot of shots in a short period of time. And so I think it people are okay with with my shooting style. It fits my editing. Yeah, awesome, very cool. So, um. Tell me if there's just like any piece of advice for someone who is who's currently making just a short film at a wedding and they want to get into a higher price point and they think one of the ways they can do that is through making a long form documentary edit. 
So they haven't done that before. They've really just been kind of shooting for these, you know, three to five second clips that they're going to use in the highlight. What's like the biggest piece of advice that you would have for someone like that who needs to change their style enough to be able to shoot a 60 minute documentary out of a wedding? Well, I think there's only so much you can do by yourself. Like I was shooting a lot of weddings by myself and that seemed to be where my limitation was. That was where I would run into problems. You know, I'm always making a couple mistakes each wedding. If I had someone else backing me up, I'd be making less of those mistakes. And I think it'd be easier to stick to your, your kind of your, your shot list. Like if you know that you're making this longer piece and you're going to need more sustained, longer, beautiful shots, uh, I don't know if you you necessarily should do it by yourself. So you might yeah. want to find some assistance for that. No, yeah, I agree. I part of the reason I asked that is because I've just started offering full length documentary edits. Basically, what I've done before is a five to seven minute highlight film and a full cut of their ceremony multi cam with four cameras plus the same thing for their toasts. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'll throw in, depending on the package, you know, we'll throw in like their first dances and stuff like that. But I just started offering the full documentary edit and I did my, filmed my first one of these yesterday, actually. Um, and I have like five more that I have on the books for this yeah. year that have the documentary upgrade edit on there. And I've learned a ton and that was definitely one of the things I learned is I, I always take two people with me regardless. Yeah. I'm thinking like if I need to make a documentary edit and do it right, I want three people with me yeah, or, or two other people besides me. Um, so that's definitely one of the huge things that I learned. I'm also, I'm, I'm going to call to set up a meeting with each of those people that's booked me and say, Hey, you know, this was my experience. If we want to do this right, we yeah. need to make, we need to make it a multi-day shoot. Um, so yeah. you're going to have to give me a bigger budget. Um, which I've become more and more comfortable with that, um, with those conversations. And so I'll feel good about them. And, you know, I'll basically tell them like, we can still do this and it'll be fine. But if we want to do it right, I've learned now we need to do a multi-day shoot. Yeah. And, you know, I'll make more money off of it that way anyway. Right. So <laughs> that'll, that'll make me happy too. So. Well, one thing I kept finding with weddings is that I was always afraid to push my price up, but then every time I did, it didn't slow down the work. Like yep. people, I think maybe I was, you know, either you're always undervaluing yourself. So maybe there's always a, a higher ceiling on your own price, but also there may all, always be a market for any price range. You might lose some of the people fresh out of college that don't have a lot of money to spend, but there's probably another market of people that are willing to spend more. And, and they probably just by seeing your higher price point go, Oh, you're the luxury brand that I'm looking for. <laughs> exactly. No, I always tell people like, you should have a crazy package that you don't expect to ever book because if nothing else, it makes people think that you're better than you, than you are, you know, or, um, you know, it also kind of has a psychological effect of, Oh, this package is $20,000. And so, the $15,000 package all of a sudden sounds quite more reasonable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've always heard that a lot of wedding videographers have the three packages and they expect everyone to get the, the middle one. It just makes yeah. like the purchase decision easier. Yeah. You, you kind of aim for the middle on those things. Yeah. Yeah. If you're trying to net 
eight grand per wedding, you know, you probably ought to have a $12,000 package too. Right. You know? I think near the end when I was doing it, I got tired of the idea of offering something that I didn't actually want to do. I guess at the same time too, I also wasn't trying to book a million weddings. I was kind of like, I don't necessarily need weddings. I have other things too. So I just got rid of that top package. I was kind of like, I want people to buy my top package. The, the $3,000 package, that's the one I actually want to do. That's what I offer. <laughs> yeah. And it was like either that for me or like a ceremony only version, which was like 2000 or something. Yeah. There you go. Cool. Um, well, awesome. So let's do this. Um, I always like, like a good pick of the week. Yeah. So uh, give me, give me something that's somehow related to making better wedding or sorry. It doesn't have to be wedding films. It can be documentary films, but yeah, something no. that's related to making better films. Yeah. For me, so you're talking about a piece of gear, right? It could be a piece of gear. It could be uh, an education piece. It could be a movie. Like it could be anything. Well, for me, I, I have to recommend the the Pedco Ultra Clamp. Ooh, it's just this little tiny clamp that has a little like a little ball head adapter on top. Uh -huh. It's pretty small, uh, cool. and it's only like fifteen to twenty dollars depending on where you buy it. It's on Amazon. It's on B and H. And I used to always have one of these and I would do things like, you know, maybe I would mount a GoPro in a weird spot or, mm -hmm. you know, it's even, it's hefty enough that I can mount my whole DSLR on it. Nice. Uh, but then I thought, why do I only have one of these? Because I can use them for, I'm actually using one to hold the light up right now. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I use one to like attach my microphone to various things. Okay. I'll use one to, rec to like attach my audio recorder to my tripod. So just came in really handy for like attaching cameras and mics and everything. Nice. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I'm going to do something different this time. I'm going to give an anti pick of the week. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't done this before, but this is, uh, this is a little recorder um, that I oh, have. I've had that. You've had this. Did yeah. you like it? Is it wait? Is it a recorder? Or is it a wireless? Oh, uh, sorry. It's it's actually it plugs into the bottom of a microphone. Yeah, so and it records. It, it doesn't record. It sends. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a wireless transmitter. Yeah, I ha I use that same one. Sorry, I used the wrong word there. But this is the Sony. It's the UTX P03. So um, it's part of it's part of a whole series of devices that I actually love the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought I would get this and I could plug it into my Sennheiser mic here, which I love. And I'll use that during the toast. And that way, a lot of times I'm like with a DJ and even if it's a nice wedding, like he shows up with a Radio Shack yeah. army mic, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't want my toast recorded with that. So I, you know, wanted to use my own system and then just patch it into his sound system. Yeah. So, um, anyway. Okay. So you don't ask him to hold two mics. You just. Right. So I'm using yeah. my wireless system. It goes into my recorder separate before it even touches his system. So it can bypasses his system completely. Like he can't screw me up. Yeah. Um, and then it goes into his speakers as well. But this thing I thought would be amazing. And it is, except that people tend to, when they have this, they tend to hold it right at the bottom. If you're watching the video, you can see. Yeah. But they tend to hold it right at the bottom of the mic. And what it does is it, it like pushes it off oh, no. of the mic. And so I did, this was the first wedding that I was using it at was this weekend. And uh, it came off twice. <laughs> we had to go put it back on. 
which is well, quite, you know. Yeah, it's embarrassing, but at least with your setup, you knew, everyone knew that the mic wasn't working. Like, yeah. there's an opportunity to go force them to put it back on and not, like, lose all the audio. Yeah, and I got to catch them, you know, or, uh, like, um, go go up and teach them, like, hey, choke up, you know. Yeah. Then, then the next person, they also didn't do that, so it fell down again. So yeah. anyways, uh, this is brand new, but it's going back to B&H. B and H uh, sells, although it's on back order, so that's the reason I didn't purchase the other one. Instead, is the microphone that has basically the transmitter built into it. Right. Um, and I think I have a Sennheiser that does that, and they're expensive mics, but it is nice that yeah, they're all it's in like one. It's like a three hundred and fifty dollar mic, but this yeah. thing was too. This thing was like three hundred thirty bucks. Yeah. Um. So none of this is cheap, you know. Yeah. Um. To do it right, but but anyways, this is going back. So, um. Yeah, the UTX P03, it just falls off of the microphone. So don't try that <laughs> as your solution. Uh, if you're going to do what I'm trying to do and bypassing the DJ altogether, get the mic with the transmitter built into it um, because I'm hoping that works a whole lot better. So, yeah. <laughs> anyways, there's my anti-pick of the week. <laughs> um, well, this is the end of our show. So, Griffin, why don't you tell us more about uh, where our listeners and viewers can go to find out more about you? Sure. Well, if they just go to griffinhammond.com or if you just Google me, you'll find my YouTube channel where I do DIY tutorials on my website, griffinhammond.com. There's my film Sriracha. You'll also find my podcast called Hey Indie Filmmakers. All that stuff about me is on there. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, where can we go to to watch uh, the documentary? Watch Sriracha. It is on a bunch of platforms like Vimeo and iTunes. If you have Amazon Prime, it's actually free on there. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, go watch Sriracha, whether it's on Amazon Prime or one of the other sites um, where you only have to pay $3 to see it, um, yeah. which is a bargain because it's a really cool documentary. So I highly encourage you to go do that. And also uh, subscribe to him on YouTube because he's putting out great content. Uh, subscribe to his podcast as well. It's really great stuff. We need, we need more resources like this. And so I'm grateful to Griffin for the way that he has, in a lot of ways, blazed a trail for people like me to, to do what I'm doing right now. But, but also blazed a trail for, uh, for listeners like you who are making wedding films um, and, and other type of films to, you know, know what the heck you're doing. Um, so just super grateful for you and for the resources that you have to offer us. So make sure you do go, um, not only if you're listening to this, subscribe to our podcast, but also subscribe to Griffin's and to his YouTube channel as well. So Wonderful. Thank you so much. On. It's been really awesome having you, man. Oh yeah. It was great. I enjoyed this. The Wedding Film Academy podcast is produced by Taylor Juarez. If you found this episode helpful, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show and help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. And when you're done, head on over to WeddingFilmAcademy.org to chat with our other wedding filmmakers like yourself in the comments section. Until next time, keep making movie magic.